Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. We're all broken. Romans, or Isaiah 53.6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. That's how we're going to get fixed, by the way, is our sinfulness and our brokenness is going to be laid upon him. And I'm going to show you exactly how that works from the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to get in Romans chapter 5 and 6 with me. We're going to start in 6 and come back to 5. Because a few paragraphs after chapter 3, all have sinned. Here's what it says in Romans 3, or Romans 6, 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift, see there's this sin problem, that's the fallen part. But 6.23 doesn't say we're just all sinners. There's no hope. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He's going to give you a gift even though there's a brokenness. He's going to find a way to gift you eternal life. Instead of being separated from him forever, we now have this hope. And I want to show you where this hope and this help comes from. It, it starts in the book of Romans. I just want to review uh, Romans chapter 5 with you for a few minutes. Romans 5, verse 1. If you, if you have your physical Bible or your electronic Bible, you really want to follow along with some of this. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace, which we stand and we rejoice or exult in hope, of the glory of God. So let me just give you a couple of very important deals. This chapter is written to people who have trusted Christ as their Savior. They've already accepted Christ to pay for their sin. They realize we're all sinners and you can't fix that yourself. He has to pay for your sins for you. And so Paul writes to the Romans. He spent several chapters talking about how you have to get to that point. But once you've trusted Christ, he says, chapter 5, verse 1, since you've done that, here's what we have. And I love this passage. We are justified by faith. We're justified. Once we trust Christ, we're justified by faith. And that word means, it's, it's a, a Greek word, and it means to exchange ledgers. It's literally a term from a courtroom where you would have a, a, a list of sins against the city or the court or whatever you've done wrong, and here's, here's all your crimes, and you go before the judge, and you've got to do something with that list. You've got to pay for them, you've got to go to jail for them, you've got to do something. In Jesus' day... Somebody could come pay for it for you, and they would say, I'll take his punishment, and you give him my freedom. That's how it worked. And uh, so I always tell people, just picture a, a giant legal pad. For me, it's like a New York phone book looking thing, the old phone book days. And, uh, but a New York phone book would be gigantic, tiny little print in it. And, and I just imagine that it's all the print is all your sins you've ever sinned your whole life. Every single sin you've ever sinned your whole life is written in that book. And all the sins you're going to sin, by the way, right? Because the Lord knows all of our sins, all of them. So here's a stack of all my sins, and God the judge looks at that and goes, you know, you're a sinner, and the wages of sin is death. But then Jesus, in the courtroom, says, here's what I'll do. And this is what the word justify literally means in the original Greek. It means to trade ledgers. Jesus comes in with his name on a piece of paper, and it's blank, by the way. He comes into the courtroom with an empty sheet. There's no... Sin he's ever committed against God. There's no crime. He is righteous and holy and pure and just. And so he is the holy Lamb of God, unspotted and unstained. 
And he comes into the court with a, a name. It says Jesus Christ crossed out and it's blank. And he tells God, the judge, I'll trade. Give me stands, New York phone book full of sin, and he can have my list. And now I am just as if I've never sinned. I'm justified by the work of Christ. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, when you trusted that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, he justified you. Isn't that really cool? Man, I love, love that truth, that, that he took my sins and I'm no longer accountable to God for my sins. By the way, I'm not accountable to God for my future sins. doesn't mean I keep sinning. I'll show you that in a minute. But it literally means all of my sins are paid for now. All of my sins are paid for. Between me and God, and that's why the next part's important, he says, and we have peace, verse 1. We have peace with God. Now, you know, we've been through a, a challenging year at church, and some of y'all know there have been conflicts with some some you know friends and people that we thought I thought were real close friends and we had conflicts and all this kind of stuff. And it's rough when you're not in peace with people that you think you can be at peace with, right? It gets complicated, it gets hurtful, right? But here's what you can go every night when you go to bed and put your head on your pillow and know this verse is true. If you trust in Christ your Savior, you and God, no okay. Because I have peace with God. If I'm in conflict with anybody else, I still have peace. With God. And I am at peace with Him. And so not only am I uh, justified by Him, but God is at peace with me through Jesus Christ. He is at peace with me. But now, verse 2 says, we've also obtained this place that we stand in, and we literally, the, the text says, literally, we stand in grace. Grace is undeserved favor from God. Well, you can read the first part of the text and figure out how that happened. You know, Romans 3 says we're, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he's none, none worthy, no not righteous, and all that good stuff. But now he's justified us. And, and not only justified us, but he's given us peace with God. God's at peace with Stan. God is at peace with Stan. God's at peace with Diana. God's at peace with Jay and Kathy and Mark. And God's at peace with Lilla. God's at peace with Mary. God's at peace with Jenny. God's at peace with all of us that have trusted him, right? He's at peace with us. And he says, and you stand in grace. And the picture, the word picture, is that grace is all the way around you. You cannot see anything but grace. You can't be anything but grace. You can't get out of grace. Grace has no limits and no boundaries. He'll prove that by the end of the chapter. But it's really the picture he's painting at the beginning of the chapter. You're standing in a place filled with grace. When you celebrate Christmas morning, please know that Jesus came to this earth as a baby so you could stand in a place filled with grace by trusting Him. So, so Romans 5 says we, st we have this, this process of hope that we're going to go through. Look what it says in verse 2. We stand in grace and we also rejoice in the hope of the glory. And not only this, verse 3, but we rejoice in our tribulations. Wait a minute. Whoa. Whoa. I thought we were in grace and peace and all that cool stuff. Yes. And in the midst of all of that, life brings tribulation. Life brings tribulation. And Paul says we can rejoice in our tribulation. Why? Because here's what tribulation can do for you. If you're standing in grace, if you're at peace with God, if you're justified through his work on the cross, here's what grace, all that does for you. We stand in our tribulation knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. And proven character brings about hope. That's what happens. 
God gives us hope. What kind of hope does he give us? Not just any hope. Look at verse 5. Hope does not disappoint. He gives us a hope that never disappoints. All right, let me give you an example. Darlene and I went hunting yesterday morning. We got a few minutes to sneak up into my friend's property up in Citronella and sit in the tree stands and have a wonderful time watching red birds and squirrels. Okay? We hoped to see more than that. We hoped, you know, some beautiful grain-fed whitetail would walk by and, you know, we could put some fresh meat in our freezer. We hoped. We hoped. Right? It was a big hope, by the way. I hoped to go hunting a few other days ago, and it rained, and we didn't go. I can't predict the rain. You know, it's like, I hope it doesn't rain if I go hunt. Well, good luck with your hope there, buddy. Your hope's not going to change the weather, is it? No. You know, my hope didn't make a deer appear yesterday, right? So what kind of hope is this? What kind of hope is that doesn't disappoint? It's a hope based in God's love. See, the hope that we have is that all that we're going through is covered in his love. We hope in him, and it'll never disappoint because, look at verse 6. It doesn't disappoint because, or I'm sorry, verse 5. The hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out to us. His love is not something that's ever going to not be there. His love, his grace. Remember, you can't get out of the grace once you're in, you're in. So I can never get free from his grace. I can never not be loved by him. His hope will never disappoint me now. What he says is going to happen is going to happen. What he promises is going to be true is going to be true. How he promises he's going to get me through these trials, which Romans 5 is talking about going through trials, not around them, not over them, not under them, not avoiding them, but going through the trial so that you get perseverance and proving character. Proving character gives you this hope in God as you go, hey, God is so, so much in love with me. He'll get me through anything. And then it comes to what I want to focus on this morning, probably my favorite section right here. Verse 6, and this is the brokenness. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly declare, or hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, some would die. Now, I want you to look at this verse, and it's uh, verse 7. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, Someone would dare even die. One would hardly die for a good man. I just want to ask you, in your head, when you create a list of people you would trade lives with, you would die so they could live. You would die so they could live. How big is that list? How big is the list? I, I, I was actually going to I'll just toy with it. I won't actually do it because it freaks freak y'all out because it freaks me out when I think about it. But, it, I mean, I just call a name out, okay? Just call a name out. I've known Al Denny. Let me pick on you, brother Al. You can elder buddy. I've known Al since we were kids in the youth group here, right? We, we actually used to be young. And uh, we sang in the choir back here together and had a bunch of fun, played in the gym and all that kind of stuff. So, I've known him for that long. Now, don't raise your hand because you'll hurt his feelings. But if Al was in serious trouble and going to be executed, but somebody could trade places with him. And you could save Al's life by trading places with him. That's a tough one, isn't it? You go, well, I really love Al. I grew up with him. You know? But I mean, trade places, really? You know what the verse says? Woman Harley, and he's a good man. 
man, he's good. He's been here forever serving this church and loving the Lord and blessing his people. Y'all have no idea how much good he does behind the scenes. Have no idea. Before the Lord, he's you know, done some great things. Bragging, making mad. But here's the deal. Pick, any, pick anybody else in the room. You, you know, you go down your family list. That's pretty easy. I, I trade places in a heartbeat with any of my children. You know, and their death, my wife, you know, my brother, anybody like that. But, but separate it out for just a good man. Find a good man and say, would I actually take his death sentence so that he wouldn't have to die and I would die for him? Who's going to do that? That's what Paul's trying to get everybody's head into. And then he says this. But God, verse 8, demonstrates his own love toward us. And that's every single person in the room. So you wouldn't die for everybody in this room, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't trade lives with everybody for everybody in this room. But he says us, and that means everybody. Right? So you want to circle that and put your name right there in your Bible. You want to circle that word us and put me. God demonstrates his own love toward me and that while I were yet sinning, I was yet a sinner. Christ died for me. He fixed what was broken while I was still broken, by the way. I didn't have to get fixed. I didn't have to get right. I have to be better. I didn't have to stop sinning. He fixed what was broken. And I just want you to hear Romans 5 crystal clear. God's love literally, the idea behind this truth is that God's love has flooded in our hearts. I want to back up one verse. I'm sorry, I'm going to give you one little thing. While we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for us, and His love was poured out in our hearts. Remember that? That word means to flood, like we've seen those floods that happened over in Texas, and kind of after the hurricane, everything, all the water kept rising and rising and rising. God's love literally flooded into our hearts and keeps on, it's a word that means in grammar, keeps on flooding, keeps on overflowing, keeps on flowing. His love floods like that. And so his love is the beauty of that. But what does it look like? Well, it says in verse 8, he commended, he demonstrates his love for us. One translation used the word commend. I want to tell you what that word literally means. It means that his love will come and stand beside you. His love literally stands beside you. When does his love do that? While you're a sinner. Not, before, not after you get saved. He doesn't come stand beside you after you're saved. It's while you're sinning, while you're helpless, one translation says, without strength is another translation of this word, feeble, the word literally means handicapped. While you were helpless, handicapped. While you're handicapped spiritually. He died for us, the ungodly. Now this, this word ungodly, it's used in the Old Testament. Let me tell you who's talking about the Old Testament. This is sad. There's a story in Genesis chapter 6 of this really cool boat that a guy had to build. We went to see the replica of that. Y'all know what the story's about? Noah. Noah built an ark. Right? And who got on the ark? Give me a little reference here. Come on, who got on the ark? His family and a few. Yeah, his family. And everybody else, everybody else, the Lord judged and ground. Everybody else. The word ungodly here is the word for the people that were on the boat. People that had rejected God, they lived so vile and evil and so against God's direction and plan and calling and God's love for them, 
They had chosen to live their own lives, and God said, I'm done with this. I'm done with everything. I'm going to wipe out and start over. And then Noah found grace. Stood in a place called grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God gave him a boat to plan, and he built it. And he, he protected and redeemed a handful of people. I wrote an article after we, I wrote a blog post after we did the tour of the ark called Big Grace. That thing is ginormous. It, it, it makes our church look teeny tiny. It makes this building look teeny tiny on your side. I wrote this article called Big Grace because it's just a beautiful picture of God's grace that he didn't wipe everybody out. Because all of us are ungodly. All of us are the people outside the boat. But he sent a Savior to save us. God demonstrates his love toward us. He came and stood beside us. He literally came to the earth and stood beside us with his grace and his love. While we were still sinners, while we were on the path foreign to God, while we were rejecting God, while we were unlovely and unlovable, he showed love to us. What, what merits God's love to you? Why does God love you? Because you're such a good person? Because you're a wonderful, perfect, great person? No. God's love is to the ungodly, to the handicapped spiritually, to the broken. He loves broken people. And thank God He does because all of us are broken. Well, what does it look like for God's love to come and stand beside us? He stands beside us now and approves of us. What would that look like? I'm going to give you two quick stories to close out with this morning. And one you're going to have to really dig for in your Bibles. It's in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 3. By the way, if you go to Malachi, go to Matthew, it's easier to find. And back up about three books, two books. You can find Zechariah chapter 3. So find, find, your, find your Malachi, your last book of the Old Testament, and you can find Zechariah. Here's the story in Zechariah. Joshua, the high priest, is atoning for the sins of Israel. And in the vision that the prophet has, Joshua is clothed and in his filthy garments. He's standing before God. And here's what the verse says. And by the way, this isn't Joshua of, of the battle of Jericho. Joshua led the people of Israel. It's just one of the high priests whose names happen to be the same. As, as Joshua who did that, and Joshua who's my son. And uh, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The picture that Zechariah sees in his vision as a prophet is the high priest of Israel is standing before God. Next to him is uh, the, the angel of the Lord. By the way, that's Jesus. And then on the other side is Satan. So it's the courtroom judgment of heaven. And it'll say in a few minutes that, that uh, Joshua is, well, let me keep reading for you. He's standing in the right hand to accuse him. The Lord said, Satan, to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Satan, indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And here's where we see what Joshua is clothed with filthy garments standing before the angel. Can you imagine going before the presence of God standing in garments that are, this word filthy, by the way, means like sewer. It's like he dipped them in the sewer. In the sewer. Okay, it's that kind of refuse. And you pulled it out of the sewer. And you put it on and said, now I'm going to go see God. See, Joshua represents all of Israel. As a high priest, he represents all of Israel's sins. So every time somebody sins, it's like it stains that garment he wears before God. 
And he's got to go once a year. He's got to take all of the sins of the whole year of Israel into the presence of God. And hold them accountable. God's going to hold them accountable for them. That's what the high priest does. By the way, who's our high priest? Not Joshua, but Yeshua, Jesus. He's our high priest. And he, that's what he does for us, by the way. He does exactly what happens here. So here's the deal. Jesus, so Jesus is standing there, and, and Satan is there to accuse. By the way, Satan's a really good lawyer at some level. He's pretty good with his math. And he can look at the high priest who's clothed in all the sins of Israel and go, I'm accusing because he's accusable. <laughs> Just like he can look at you and go, I'm accusing because you're accusable. You have sin in your life. You're filthy to God who is pure and holy. Every little fat thought that's wrong is sinful and filthy. And reject, he rejects that. God rejects even our sinful thoughts get rejected by him, much less our behaviors. And here's what Jesus says, the angel of the Lord says. The Lord says, I rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, talking about Joshua, not a brand plucked in the fire. I'm going to rescue him from the judgment of fire. That's a familiar phrase. I'm going to rescue him from the judgment of fire, and I'm rebuking you. And by the way, when you say it twice in the Hebrew culture, uh, you ever having lunch or dinner with somebody in their home, uh, Hebrew, uh, devout Hebrew family, and they say something to you twice, and it's, it's you rebuke twice, it means leave. It means don't, it literally means don't let the door hit you on the way out, but you're gone. You do not get stay in the room. So here's what Jesus says to Satan before God. Out. Why? Because Jesus is standing beside Joshua. His love, God commended his love for us. And while we were yet sinners, he, while he, he demonstrates, he stands beside us in our sin. And he looks at God and goes, this one's with me. He's mine. I will clothe and cleanse him. Satan, you have to go. No more accusations. No more accusations. Out the door you go. I rebuke you twice. I rebuke you. So he's clothed in filthy garments. And here's what Jesus says. Take off his filthy garments. I've taken your iniquity away. And I'm clothing you with festal robes. Party clothes, by the way. And Jesus is saying, I just want us to party. Because you're clean now. You were filthy. And you weren't going to be part of the family. If you're filthy, you can't be part of God's family. God commended his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, not when we were perfect, Joshua didn't come in there all beautiful and perfect and all, you know, gold and white, beautiful garments. He came in filthy, like sewer filthy. And Jesus rebukes Satan, changes his garments, washes him clean and says, let's party together. We're, we're family. We're family. So there's a picture of God commending his love toward us while we were yet sinners. The second one's in John chapter 8. You guys know the story, so I'll just hit the highlights of it. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, came into the temple. All the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach. He's in the outer court of the temple. Hundreds of people would have been gathered around him to hear his magnificent teaching first thing in the morning. Wouldn't you love, gosh, wouldn't you love just sit down at the feet of Jesus and 6.30 in the morning and just getting to talk, talk to you the first thing in the morning. Hmm, wouldn't you love that? By the way, that's what the Bible helps you do. If you'll tune in, tune in, the Bible will help you do that. He came teaching early in the morning. Scribes and the Pharisees caught a woman in the act of adultery, and they brought her to Jesus. And this is what the, the, the scribes and Pharisees say. Now in the law, Moses has commanded us to stone such a woman. So 
Well, they quote the law to Jesus like he doesn't know that. The Bible says, stone her. What do you say? They were using this to test him so that they might have grounds to accuse him. Jesus stooped down on his finger, wrote on the ground, lots of questions about what he wrote. When you get to heaven, I'm praying there's a video. Gosh, I want to see the video so bad. Did he, did he write the whole scripture he's fixing to quote that they're quoting? Did he write the names of the girlfriends of the other Pharisees? Did he write the name of the other Pharisee that's apparently missing? Somebody's missing from the story. You're supposed to get adultery takes two, so two people are supposed to be there. My theory is it was, a, it was a Pharisee, and they're not about to embarrass themselves by throwing a Pharisee at the feet of Jesus, right? They're not afraid to throw an adulterous woman caught in the very act worthy of death. She's 100% guilty, 100% worthy of death. There was no sentencing necessary. There's no trial necessary. We're going to drag her to the edge of town and kill her. Oh, Jesus teaching. Let's go, let's go use this as a trap for him because we can catch him. If Jesus says stone her according to the law, which he'd be obeying the law by doing that, if he says stone, yes, what the law says, stone her, take her out. Then all the people are following Jesus because he's love and grace. They're going to be like, whoa, that was kind of harsh. If Jesus says in the temple, don't stone her, now we can take Jesus with her and stone him for teaching falsehoods in the temple. So it's a win-win for the Pharisees. They got it. These brilliant minds of the day, they're the lawyers of lawyers, they got it made. They did really one stupid, stupid thing. They took somebody very broken, somebody very sinful, somebody covered in their sin and 100% guilty and 100% chained, they threw them at the feet of the fixer. Throw at the feet of the Redeemer. The one person you can go to when everything's messed up, when your life is over, when there's no more hope and no more help. There's one person. And when you're at His feet, redemption and repairs and renewal and restoration is all possible. And so after they argue with Jesus for a while, they, they keep pressing in on Him. Because they really want to know. It says they persisted in asking him. And he's just down there right in the dirt. <laughs> and it's just boiling in their blood. And they're just about to lose their minds. Jesus just stands up and he goes, well, we're going to quote the law. Let's do the whole law. We're going to take this little snippet out that she deserves to die. Let's just make sure everybody was part of the plan. He's got the whole law. Because Jesus is the law, by the way. And Jesus says... He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stoops down and writes on the ground. And they heard that he began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, because the wisest man in the room goes, well, that's right about that. Out they go. Leaves Jesus and her. And about 200, probably 300 people in the temple with their eyes bugged up, their mouth dropped because the Pharisees just got their you know, law handed back to them pretty strong. I'll just remind you one more time. In that scene, the law says the one without sin can stone her. In that temple scene, who is without sin? Who? Say that loud. Come on. Yeah. So, you know, he could have taken her by the hand and go, baby, I'm sorry. The law says, yeah, die. Because you were caught in adultery. And I'll just take you out and stone you now because I'm not guilty of that sin. Not what he says. Because God commended his love for us that while we were yet sinners, he stood beside us. And he says, Where are those that would accuse you? Did no one condemn you? She says, No one, Lord. And then he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. That's what it means for God to fix the real thing that's broken in us. 
sin. He sent Jesus to stand beside us and repair that which is broken inside of us. Spiritually, we're all broken, and it, this is what it looks like. And then he says this little phrase to him. Would you just stop sinning? Just go on out from now and stop sinning. Can you do that? Because I've repaired you, by the way. And you're free from condemnation. That's the beauty of what it means. And that's a beautiful picture of Romans chapter 5, verse 8. If you still have your physical Bible with you or if your electronic Bible will help you do it. In Romans 5, 8, I would highly recommend you write down John 8 and Zechariah 3 as pictures of what it means for Christ to stand beside somebody and fix them. Right in the middle of their mess, He just fixed them. You know what He did when He saved you? He fixed you right in the middle of your mess. When you trusted Him as your Savior, you got that cleansing. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, Every time I see this now, I think of that children's video, him sweeping on the porch, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. He is coming to fix it all. All this took place of what the Lord had spoken of through the prophets might be fulfilled. Saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. She shall bear a son. They'll call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. God committed his love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us just like he promised. He took care of the consequences of sin and even the power of sin. If you read on in Romans... He takes care of the power of sin. Romans chapter 6 says, verse 1, Shall we continue sinning that grace should abound? If, if I'm free from my sin, and I'm free from the consequences of my sin, and I'm just sinning, it doesn't matter. Paul goes, no, whoa, stop that thought. That's nuts. You're actually free from your sin, so you can give glory to God by not sinning now. And he literally says we need to change that. So let me give you a couple of carryouts. These are responses in Romans, all of these carryouts come right out of Romans. I don't have time to tie them up for you in knots, but you can see them uh, if you'll do a little quick study in Romans. One, we're supposed to celebrate that God has given freedom, given us freedom from sin. We're supposed to celebrate that. I don't understand we're supposed to celebrate that. It's, what we, it's why we sing songs about it. It's why we gather together and go, man, can you believe I'm free from my sin? He set me free. And then number two, just stop sinning. That's what he tells the woman. That's what Romans 6, 1 and 3 and 15 says. Stop it. Y'all, some of y'all are old enough to remember. Remember the old Bob Newmar show where he was a counselor? Uh, he was like a, a therapist. Lived in an apartment, had crazy people all around him all the time because he was a therapist. That was his thing. When he, when he would counsel somebody, well, just, they'd tell him what the problem was. He'd go, well, just stop it. <laughs> it's what the Bible says. Sin is the problem. Stop. Make, find a way, and there's tons of scripture to help you with that. Find a way to stop sinning. One of the best ways you can stop sinning is recognize that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. 
I brought this nail with me because I keep it with me a lot of times at Christmas time. This is an actual nail that would, it's, it's common to that day. This is what would have went through his hand into the wood. Okay? And I always, at Christmas time, actually gave my children, all of them have one of these, because Christmas is about this, the cross. And it's a good reminder of the cross for me. The tree was the tree he died on, and he died by having nails put through his hands. And I need to stop disobeying him because he loved me that much. He, he commended his love for me. I need to stop sinning and let that change my life. Grace changes people. Read all those New Testament stories I've told you in the last two weeks. All of them, read them. They, grace changed all those people. Number three, you need to declare your freedom from sin out loud. Romans 6, verse 13. I highly recommend you memorize 6, 11 through 13 and say it out loud. I repeat it almost every day of my life. But declare your freedom out loud regularly. It's like a statement of faith. And you can just say out loud that you know he set you free from the power of sin. And, and you can, Romans 6 says, reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Reckon yourself. It means declare it. Say it out loud is what it means. I declare myself to be dead from sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus today. I declare that. I'm dead to sin. It's kind of putting Satan on notice and going, hey, there's the door, buddy. I'm dead to sin today. He died for me. Right? So, fourth one is just tell somebody about God's grace. Just tell somebody about this grace and this Christ that came and stood beside you in your sin. No matter how old you were, you were full of sin because your whole life whole life of sin was before Jesus, no matter how old you were. I was saved in the second grade grace film. I'd done a whole lot of bad stuff, by the way. <laughs> second grade grace film. But my whole life of sin was before me. And he set me free from all of that. He paid for all my sins because God commends his love for us and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't come just to fix people that were had leprosy or people that had relational problems like the Samaritan woman or people that had... Uh, Spiritual problems like the, man, the demonic man at the Gadarenes we talked about last week, he didn't just come to fix those people. He came to fix everybody that has a sin nature. That's you. That's me. And by the way, he did it. He died on the cross. And all we have to do is trust him. But you have to trust him. And, and it's not just easy believism. By the way, you don't just say, well, I believe in that, so I'm good. The, the guys that believe in Jesus in the New Testament follow his plan. They obey his words. And they learn. They learn to do what he says, not what they want to do. They don't live for themselves anymore. They live for him and for his purposes, for his glory and for his work. That's what it means to follow him. We're supposed to be followers of Christ. Trust in him and follow him. Amen?